Have you ever visited a haunted house? And I'm not talking about amusement park attractions. I mean the real deal. Unexplained phenomena, flickering lights, a disquieting sense of dread that wakes you up in the small hours of the morning. If you haven't experienced any of this for yourself, then maybe you should take a trip to San Jose, California, where a sprawling mansion has been spooking locals and visitors alike for over a century. There are a lot of stories about the Winchester Mystery House. There's the one about neighbors hearing the mansion's mistress playing the organ at all hours of the night. There are claims that she held seances every midnight in a desperate bid to reach her dead family. The house is so huge, people say, so as to confuse vengeful ghosts or to stave off death itself. As far as ghost stories go, the ones attached to the Winchester Mystery House are pretty good if you ask me. They tantalize, they send a shiver down your spine, and when you hear them inside the house itself, it just feels like they must be true. But scary stories can, like ghosts, be mischievous. They deceive you, and if you get the chance to take a closer look, you'll notice, more often than not, that they're not what they seemed. And in some cases, they're just outright lies. Welcome to Women Who Haunt Us, presented by Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. Ordinarily on this show, I take you through the life and crimes of some of history's most notorious women. But this being spooky season, we're trying something a little different. This special four-part series is all about women who, rightly or wrongly, scare the bejesus out of people. Were they criminals? Sometimes. Do they live on as ghosts? Duh, debatable. Do they haunt us to this day? Absolutely. Last time, I told you the story of Mary Ellen Pleasant, a 19th-century black businesswoman whose success gave rise to rumors that she was a voodoo queen. When Mary died, much of the truth about her was eclipsed by the more exciting idea that she lived on as a vengeful spirit in San Francisco. Today, we're heading a little south of SF to pay a visit to the infamous Winchester Mystery House. While we're there, we'll meet the home's architect, a woman who never committed any crimes, but was declared guilty all the same. Sarah Winchester was heir to a fortune soaked in so much blood that people say she spent decades outrunning ghosts. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. 
The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. The Winchester Mystery House. I told you it was sprawling, and I wasn't exaggerating. The expansive mansion includes 160 rooms, 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 47 fireplaces, six kitchens, three elevators, 52 skylights, and 13 bathrooms. There's a lot of this house, is what I'm getting at. And if you believe the tour guides, this Queen Anne masterpiece is one of the spookiest homes in America. Take the number of bathrooms, for example. 13. Unlucky, right? Maybe even creepy? Well, people say that Sarah Winchester, who built most of the mystery house, loved the number 13. This claim is said to be evidenced by the windows with 13 panes of glass, the chandelier that had a 13th arm added for Sarah's satisfaction, drains with 13 openings, the list goes on. Of course, numbers aren't all that lend the mansion its definitive air of creepiness. There's also the seemingly unexplainable architectural quirks, a stairway that leads directly into a ceiling, a door that opens from a second-story room onto a sudden drop, walls built to enclose windows, and then there's the seance room. At the center of the mansion, you'll find a chamber with multiple doors in and out, but that only Sarah was allowed to enter. There, she held her nightly seances. To this day, visitors report that being in the room makes them feel ill, that they can feel hands pressing in on them. Who was she trying to contact during those seances? Well, some people believe that Sarah Winchester was desperate to reach out to her late husband and daughter. Others say that she wanted to stay one step ahead of the vengeful spirits who haunted her every waking moment. That's why the house was so big, they say. She was trying to hide from the ghosts. If she ever stopped building, people whisper, she knew they'd find her. But if that's the case, and that's not me saying that it is, but if we take any of that at face value, then why did people think that Sarah was haunted? What had she possibly done in her life to earn that reputation? And more importantly, did she deserve any of it? When a woman's life has been reduced to spooky folklore at a roadside attraction, how can we know what the truth is? Well, that's why you come to me, because I know what's really going on at the Winchester Mystery House. And trust me when I say it's far more insidious than a run-of-the-mill haunting. But to understand how Sarah's story got here, we need to trace her journey from the very beginning. And for that, we're heading east, because she was born in New Haven, Connecticut in 1839. Even then, the town had a proud history of classic architecture and thoughtfully maintained landscapes. And as her family, the parties, were relatively well-off, the young girl probably had an eye for the finer details that elevate the everyday to the sublime. It's also possible that particular interest was sparked by her family. Sarah, or Sally as everyone called her, came from a long line of joiners. 
which explains why she was always fascinated by watching skilled craftsmen. As she grew up, her father capitalized on the emerging Victorian style by making beautiful and sought-after spindles, moldings, tracery, and wainscoting. His ambition and skill helped elevate the family somewhat and probably helped open up Sally's world even further. For a little while, the family lived next door to another of New Haven's successful clans, though these neighbors, the Winchesters, were head and shoulders above everyone else. Oliver Winchester had made his fortune in men's clothing, specifically in patenting a new shirt design, then building a factory to churn out the shirts. Then, sometime in the 1850s, he made his second fortune when he bought an existing gun manufacturer and patented a design for the first repeating rifle, which could fire 15 shots in just 10 seconds. While a lot of this was happening, Oliver's eldest son, William, was falling in love with Sally. And it's hard not to see why. According to reports, she was bright and striking. Though maybe a little shy, she was petite, not even reaching five feet, and her dark curls, which she wore tight around her face, set off her light complexion. Sally and William married in September of 1862 when she was 23 and he was 25. And as far as I can tell, they were happy for the next few years. The newlyweds moved in with William's parents, and in 66, Sally gave birth to a little girl, Annie. The newest Winchester was born into a very privileged world. Remember how the family had gone into the gun business? Well, over the years, they'd successfully marketed the Winchester repeating rifle to the extent that it became something of a symbol of the expansion into the lawless West. Eventually, icons like Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley favored the Winchester in their acts. And future president Theodore Roosevelt praised the gun in one of his early books. Even the Canadian Mounties adopted the rifle as their official weapon. It was popular, is what I'm getting at, and it made the Winchesters very wealthy. So with a happy marriage, a new baby, and financial security assured, Sally seemed set for life. Unfortunately, here's where the first of the ghosts enters her story. Little Annie died when she was little more than a month old. After that, Sally, already someone who kept to herself, barely left the house for a year. Maybe wanting to distract the young couple from their grief, the elder Winchesters asked William and Sally to help build them a new palatial family home. The project appealed to William's interest in architecture, as well as to Sally's passion for craftsmanship. According to author and historian Mary Jo Ignafo, the process allowed Sally to absorb life lessons in interior design, construction management, real estate investment, and financial strategy. She didn't know it, but the whole affair was setting her up for a life lived well, but lived alone. Because even as their fortunes were growing, things took a decidedly downward turn for Sally and her extended family. In May of 1880, Sally's mother died. Then in December, Oliver Winchester passed, leaving behind a personal fortune of $1.5 million and the responsibility for his company squarely on William's shoulders. But William's own health was failing him. Winters had always been hard for him, and 1880 to 81 was particularly rough. In March, just three months after his father died, William himself succumbed to tuberculosis. 
Sally was just 40 and had lost her husband, mother, and father-in-law in just over a year. With both the Winchester men dead, she'd inherited quite a bit of money. But money wouldn't do her any good if she wasn't around to spend it. And following William's death, Sally was pretty unwell. Exactly what was wrong with her, I don't know, but her doctor suggested that a change of climate and a hobby that would keep her occupied and active might improve her health. So to sum up, by the early 1880s, shy Sally Winchester was in her 40s, possessed a tidy fortune of her own, liked architecture and building design, and knew that such hobbies were a way to cope with her grief. And her doctor had suggested she make a fresh start. In other words, all of the pieces were in place for the birth of the Winchester Mystery House. Coming up, Sally Winchester builds her legacy, and the haunting begins. The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Now back to the story. For all intents and purposes, Sally Winchester was all alone. Sure, she had some beloved sisters, but her husband was gone, buried with their infant daughter. In her grief, Sally used her money to take a tour of Europe, but she returned to New Haven when another family member, her sister Mary, died of cancer in 1884. After enduring so much loss in a handful of years, Sally was more than ready for a new beginning. So less than a year after her sister died, she left New Haven again and headed west to California, probably hoping to shake off her grief. Apart from the warmer climate, which would have helped with the recent onset of rheumatoid arthritis, the West Coast put plenty of distance between her and any societal obligations brought on by her wealth and status. But although she liked her privacy, Sally didn't make the move alone. She convinced her three remaining sisters and their families to come along too. And in the summer of 1885, they all set out. When they arrived, Sally purchased a 45-acre property in the Santa Clara Valley. It came with an eight-room farmhouse, which she set about renovating almost immediately. The exact timeline for how the house grew is really unclear. But some have suggested that Yanada Villa, which is what Sally called her new home, grew to 26 rooms within just six months. 
And at first, she had help. She hired two architects at the outset of the project, one who completed an initial remodel and another who designed a stable. After that, she became her own architect. Maybe she wasn't happy with their work, or perhaps coming up with her own designs helped her feel close to her late husband, who'd always been fond of the art. Moving forward, Sally consulted carpenters, but drew up her own plans for extensions to the house. And she wasn't totally fumbling around in the dark. She read manuals and subscribed to journals like Architectural Record to make sure she had at least some idea of what she was doing. Of course, she didn't always get it right. But for someone with as much money as Sally, that wasn't much of an issue. She'd get frustrated when things didn't pan out, sure, but then she'd just have the mistake torn down so she could start again. Or else she'd tear it down and move on to something else. That's the other thing. Sally didn't have a master plan for Yanata Villa. She worked piecemeal, building in fits and starts as the weather and her energy levels allowed, which resulted in a jumble of rooms, parlors, Foyers, bathrooms, kitchens, all connected variously by doors, windows, porches, verandas, and hallways. The aesthetic was also a frenzied mismatch of styles and cultures. A unifying vision didn't seem to interest Sally. She just did as she pleased. And the result was something people would one day say pointed to insanity. But it's far more likely that she was just having fun. She liked designing her house and she had the money to fill it with whatever made her happy. A case in point, the stunning stained glass windows throughout the building, they were a popular feature in upper and middle class homes at the time, but Sally's were on another level. Some of her pieces were from Tiffany Studios of New York. It wasn't all style and no substance though. Sally fitted Yanata Villa with all the mod cons. There was indoor plumbing, electricity throughout, and she even had an ingenious indoor greenhouse built with a special floor that captured water and recycled it for the garden outside. And as the years went by, Sally started building up as well as out. In 1896, she added a third floor, then a fourth, and eventually the mansion topped out at seven stories tall. Most of that height came from a Tudor crenellated tower that gave the building a castle look, and which Sally had torn down and rebuilt 16 times before she was satisfied. Through it all, Sally steadily bought up her neighbor's properties until her domain swelled to nearly 160 acres. Obviously, as the estate grew, San Jose locals watched on in wonder curious about what was going on in the sprawling mansion. But wonder was all they could do, because Sally Winchester just wasn't much of a people person. As she had been her whole life, she was somewhat reclusive, and so people figured she was a crank. Which, you know, is just what you call an older woman when she doesn't fit the ideal image of a kindly mother figure. Inevitably, the speculation about Yanada Villa and Sally spilled over onto the pages of local newspapers. The first article popped up in 1895, about eight years after the remodel began. It speculated wildly about why the home kept getting bigger and what could possibly be driving the construction. In an almost joking manner, the writer wondered whether Sally feared she would die if she ever stopped building. 
After that, other articles started appearing, some of them just copying whole swaths of the first one verbatim and otherwise building on the outlandish theories with new ones. Absent any kind of concrete information about their subject, they literally just made stuff up. So let's take a sec to clear a few things up, shall we? They wrote that Sally Winchester was a snob, but it's possible she just wasn't gregarious and people seemed more inclined to believe a woman was mean than reclusive. They wrote that she was superstitious. As far as I can tell, she wasn't. Some of the few people who did know her told journalists that she was an unusually sensible woman. But that's far less interesting to repeat than the fantastical nonsense the papers were peddling. They said she was a spiritualist, which, again, wasn't unusual for the time, but there's nothing to back that claim up. There was a thriving spiritualist community among San Jose's other wealthy residents, but there's nothing to suggest that she ever attended any meetings or seances or made any financial contributions to the movement. And that's not all. Somewhere along the way, rumors started that Sally held seances alone in a locked room at the center of her mansion. Perhaps people had heard she was a widow whose only daughter had died in infancy and that several of her sisters had died too. There's an oft-repeated story about Sally that says before she moved to California, she went to see a famous Boston medium named Adam Coons. During a seance, Coons apparently told her that her family was haunted by the ghosts of everyone killed by a Winchester rifle. If you believe the legend, the medium told Sally that the only way to keep the angry spirits at bay was to live in a house that was never finished. Presumably, the idea was that constant construction would bewilder them, stop them from enacting their curse on her like they had so many of her loved ones. But here's the thing, there's no record of a medium named Adam Coons ever existing. Not only that, there's no evidence that Sally ever visited a psychic or medium anywhere. And as Mary Jo Ignafo points out in her book, Captive of the Labyrinth, spiritualism was a social religion and seances were a social event. The idea that a person would hold one alone, quote, misrepresents the nature of the ritual and misunderstands Sarah Winchester. However, you can see how easy it would be to believe, right? Spiritualism had been growing in the years following the Civil War as Americans sought a way to deal with the loss of their loved ones. So it would have made complete sense if she got swept up in the craze. It certainly didn't help that Sally was still wearing mourner's black when she'd first arrived in California. Coupled with her seeming disinclination to interact with the living, she just gave off the air of a person who was overly concerned with death. I can see how people came to this conclusion. I really can. It's just, there was no proof for any of it. All of it was gossip and guesswork. Though, to be fair, not everyone got it entirely wrong. One writer suggested that the house might be merely a workshop and the structure itself is a collection of notes taken by a woman of great wealth while educating herself in the architecture of several countries. And between you and me, I think they hit it right on the head. But the idea that the ever-expanding house was little more than a hobby for Sally wasn't as interesting as the possibility that it was something more sinister. And as the century drew to a close, it was only gonna get worse.
In a moment, the twisted legacy of Sally Winchester. Are you ready for heart-stopping, toe-tingling, coma-inducing levels of drama and romance? Okay, great. Well, you can find it all included with Prime Video. Check out Expat, starring Nicole Kidman, The Idea of You, starring Anne Hathaway, and the history-bending romanticy, My Lady Jane, which will leave you speechless forever. Or till the end of the episode. Find your happy place. Prime Video. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Now, the birth of a ghost story. With its tall, conical-topped towers, blue fish-scale shingles, ornamental shrubs, and flower beds bursting with color, Sally Winchester's mansion was a sight to behold. And although there were undoubtedly design flaws, thanks to her amateur architectural design work, no one could deny it was an impressive estate. Sally's reputation, on the other hand, was less robust. As I mentioned earlier, she liked to keep to herself, almost aggressively so. She planted thick greenery along the borders of Yanada Villa, perhaps as a way to screen it from view. Maybe she thought that if her house wasn't quite so visible, people wouldn't want to talk about it quite so much. As for why she never let people see the house, some guessed that she was sensitive about her love of architecture. After all, it seems likely that the whole thing started as a way to work through her grief. It was never meant to be perfect. It was meant to keep her busy, to connect her to her late husband. Why would she want people to walk through that loving tribute and judge it? So even as rumors about her made the rounds, Sally never tried to set the record straight. Which makes sense if you think about it. She was happy for people to stay away from her, so if people thought she was odd or a snob, it probably worked in her favor. Also, she had more money than she knew what to do with. So what did she care about the opinions of others? She'd been earning thousands each year in dividends from her stock in the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. And when her mother-in-law died in 1898, her share of the company grew to about 30% ownership. And despite her incredible wealth, Sally was very careful with her money. Sure, she owned plenty of real estate around California, but that was an investment. Her rambling money pit of a mansion was more of a folly, but the land was valuable. And let's call the building itself an investment in her happiness. In other areas, Sally was less inclined to splash around her wealth. When her sister and brother-in-law declared insolvency during an economic downturn, she refused to pay their debts, even when the debtors sued her for payment. She could have very easily, but she didn't. Which was just one more reason for everyone in town to believe she was a miserly old crank. Then, in April of 1906, an earthquake struck San Francisco, killing over 3,000 people. The effects of the 7.9 magnitude quake were felt across California to varying degrees. 
In San Jose, Sally's beloved Yanada Villa suffered some serious damage. Before the earthquake, the house had been pristine. Now it stood in relative ruins. The seven-story tower crumbled, leaving an impressive hole in the mansion's third floor. Likewise, most of the chimneys fell, either tumbling to the ground or plunging straight down into the building. And much of the third and fourth floors were damaged beyond repair. It was, in short, a mess, like so many places in California were. But unlike her neighbors, Sally decided not to rebuild. She had the debris cleared away and employed contractors to make the home safe to live in, but she didn't try to restore it to what it had been. As a result, there were second-story doors that opened out onto nothingness, just a void where a room or balcony had once been. Chimneys were sealed off below ceiling level, making them look like they'd been abandoned halfway through construction. Staircases suddenly led to nowhere since so much of the top few stories had been demolished. After that, even Sally herself thought that the house looked like it was built by someone with questionable mental health. And apparently, locals agreed with her. When it became clear that Sally wasn't going to restore Yanada Villa, newspaper articles appeared, featuring pointed declarations that anyone who didn't rebuild after the earthquake must be insane. Then, the ghost stories started. So if you're here for the haunting, this is where you'll want to pay attention. It was around 1908, and Sally, now in her late 60s, was apparently thinking about selling her sprawling San Jose property. As ever, any move the Valley's wealthiest woman made was catnip for the press. So they wrote about the pending sale, and those articles are the first mention of angry spirits. Someone at the San Francisco Examiner, I'm not sure who, came up with the theory that whatever decision Sally made about the house risked the wrath of ghosts. After that, the question of whose spirits they were and why they were angry was up for speculation. So that's what people did. And eventually it was decided that all of it, Sally's supposed superstition, the years-long expansion of the home, the imagined seances, were the product of guilt. The spirits were those of people killed by the Winchester rifle. And as someone who'd profited from the gun, the burden of guilt was laid squarely at her feet. And that's something I have conflicted feelings about because Sally had nothing to do with the creation or sale of the Winchester rifle. She simply married into the family that owned the company, then inherited several fortunes when her loved ones died. But at the same time, the Winchester definitely contributed to the enduring mythology surrounding guns in America, and that's something that has echoes to this day. So the fact that Sally profited off death feels, I don't know, weird? Still, the fact remains, Sally was lumped with an enormous amount of guilt and was assigned the role of superstitious witch haunted wherever she went, not just at Yanada Villa. A different newspaper reported that she believed she would die if she sold any of her country homes. So when she offloaded one of those properties in 1910, a supposed journalist wrote that Sally was braving the wrath of the spirits. This despite the fact that neither she nor the new owner ever reported any kind of paranormal activity in the house in question. And like always, Sally stayed quiet on the subject, though occasionally someone would step forward with an attempt to set the record straight. 
they might publish an article containing actual facts about the wealthy widow, debunking the outlandish rumors that sprang up like some game of whack-a-mole. But as ever, the truth was less interesting than the spooky fairy tales people attached to Sally. It's hard to know how the years of ceaseless rumor-mongering and outright lies affected Sally, but from about 1910, she retreated even further from public life. In all likelihood, this was probably just because she was getting older, more fragile. Rheumatoid arthritis severely affected the use of her arms and legs, and she was possibly self-conscious about the way the condition forced her hands into cramped snarls. She could barely lift her feet, so she had the staircases in the mansion replaced with low-rise steps to allow her to move about more easily. From about 1911, newspapers speculated about her health and predicted her death on a semi-regular basis. But Sally wasn't done yet. She kept up with her favorite subjects, taking subscriptions in architecture magazines, fashion periodicals, and science journals. Even as she entered her 70s, she tended to her investments, fed by the hundreds of thousands she made in dividends from the Winchester Company. She gave away a lot of money, but almost always did so anonymously, so people still tended to see her as miserly, a female Scrooge living in the San Jose Valley. One of her more significant contributions was to the New Haven Hospital. Over about 10 years, she sent more than a million dollars so they could build a new tuberculosis clinic. When her donations were made public, the hospital named the building in honor of Sally's late husband, who, you might remember, died of tuberculosis. When Sally herself died in 1922 at the age of 83, the papers didn't trumpet the news as loudly as they'd spouted nonsense about her life. According to her wishes, she was buried in New Haven in the family plot alongside her husband and daughter. As for Yanata Villa, the mansion itself was apparently appraised at no value, while the 68 acres it stood on was worth $125,000. A property developer scooped it up, and in due course, a man by the name of John H. Brown stepped forward to lease the mansion. Now, a quick word about Mr. Brown. He invented one of the earliest roller coasters, so he clearly had a mind for amusements and in the Winchester property, he saw a business opportunity. It was gonna be a real live haunted house. The ghost stories were already built into the lore of the place and there was no one around to refute them. By May of 1923, less than a year after Sally died, her beloved Yanada Villa had been officially transformed into the tourist attraction that would eventually come to be called the Winchester Mystery House. John Brown invited journalists to tour the property, something no one had done before, and the resultant columns drummed up palpable excitement for the new attraction. Before long, visitors were flocking to the house, eager to experience the spooky madness of Sarah Winchester for themselves. They got just that and then some. The peculiar architecture, the unrepaired damage from the earthquake, it all seemed to confirm what everyone had always said about the reclusive millionaire, and it was enhanced with made-up explanations for the structural oddities. Tour guides stuck to a script that built on the stories about Sally. Part of that surviving lore is that the day she died was the day the building finally stopped at Yanada Villa, 
that it had been a ceaseless process since the day she bought the property decades earlier. But according to author Mary Jo Ignafo, in 1925, Sally's attorney's office dismissed that claim in a local newspaper. She'd always just worked whenever she pleased and had barely touched the place since the earthquake. So the legend that the hammers fell silent only when Sally was gone just doesn't hold much water. Sorry. I'm not sure when that one started, but it seems that Brown, or whoever was running the house for him, was embellishing quite a bit. We know that because the number 13 didn't start appearing in articles about the house until 1929. And according to Ignafo, a carpenter who worked on the house for years swore that plenty of the building's most peculiar oddities were added after Brown took over. As for the rest, well, my guess is that much of the spooky factor is just a sort of confirmation bias. People go to the house expecting a creepy experience, so they're already primed. They're told to look for the number 13, and it's hard not to see it. Even the completely standard drains in the bathrooms have 13 holes. Ooh. And that chandelier in the bathroom, the beautifully made imported light fixture, there are 13 arms on it. Just maybe don't look too closely at the extra one, which the aforementioned carpenter suggested was added long after it was installed. If you don't know about the real woman behind the house, you couldn't possibly know how bogus it all sounds. And so, over the years, the life of Sarah Winchester has evolved into a legendary ghost story, helped in no small part by the early marketing of the mystery house. Look, they're not necessarily lying about our Sally, but they're certainly telling her story creatively. I guess that's the problem with ghost stories like this one. If you chase away the shadows with facts, you turn a lucrative haunted house into all it really ever was a way for a woman to deal with her grief. And while that might not be as fun for a spooky night out, it still seems like a beautiful corner of the world to me. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Join me next time for the final episode of our special Halloween series. We'll delve into the ghost story of a woman called America's First female serial killer. For more information on Sarah Winchester, amongst the many sources we used, we found Captive of the Labyrinth, Sarah L. Winchester, Heiress to the Rifle Fortune by Mary Jo Ignafo, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen. Edited by Kate Gallagher. Fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez. Researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. And produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 